Love Talk Radio. Good evening, folks. It's Chris Teddy, your blogger from Jamaicans.com, where we try to bring you rich conversation with Jamaicans who are making a huge difference. And do we have a treat for you tonight? We are going to be interviewing one of Jamaica's most prolific writers. Her name is Diana McCalla. McCauley. McCauley. And she only does writes, but she comes from a very varied background. She's been a newspaper columnist and environmental activist. She has lived her entire life in Jamaica, and, of course, she, she writes from a rich background. She's been a secretary, insurance executive, track, racetrack stewardess, midlife student, social commentator, environmentalist, activist, and a radio talk show host. She's also a very accomplished public speaker, and she's also dabbled in filmmaking. But we're going to be talking about her writing this evening. Let me give you a little background of the richness that she's brought to our writing. In 1991, her short story, The Mango, The Aki, and The Breadfruit, won the Lifestyle Short Story Competition. In 1994, she began writing what became a very popular opinion column for the Gleaner, and that continued for seven years. She won the Sandals Eco-Journalism Award in 1995. She's also written children's books and a short fiction that was published by the Caribbean writer. In 2008, the Blue Top Poland won the David Howe Literary Prize, awarded by the Editorial Board of the Caribbean Writer. Her debut novel, Dog Heart, won a highly commended award in the National Book Development Council of Jamaica's National Literary Award in 2006, a gold medal for the Jamaica Cultural Development Commission's National Creative Writings Competition, in, and that was in 2008 and was published by the P. Paul Tree Press last March. That's March 2010. She has many other awards, including the Hubert H. Humphrey Fellowship, and that went from 2000 to 2001, Evan P. McCollin Award for Environmental Leadership in the Caribbean in 2006, and the Bronze Musgrave Medal awarded by the Institute of Jamaica in 2009. To conduct our interview, it's my sidekick and co-host, Janice Maxwell. And as you know, Janice, as a very, she's a producer of Jamaican TV World and have a burgeoning web presence at jamaicadiaspora.com. Janice, take it away. Oh, thanks, Chris. Diana, thanks for staying so tall with us tonight. Hi, Janice. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so tell us a little about your Jamaican roots. Well, I was born here, um, my parents and all four of my grandparents. So we've been here a while. And mm-hmm. I I was born in Kingston, but mm-hmm. um, my family comes from different parts of different parts of Jamaica. My father was born in St. Anne's Bay, um, my mother in Kingston, my grandparents in Trelawney, um, Black River. So, mm-hmm. you know, we've, we've kind of come from different parts of Jamaica. Um, I've only ever spent 
the two years of my my master's degree outside of Jamaica. So I've lived here my whole life, and I'm a Kingston girl. But I often, because of all my environmental work, I often wonder how come I spent my whole life in a city, you know? But that's how it's that's how it's been. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's good to know. Um, well, our audience has our high school and college kids who are curious um, about. Uh, on our guest career path. Could you give us a summary of your journey from high school to being a first-class writer? Well, I started writing very young. Um, when when my mom died in about 2005 and we were going through her things, I found newspaper clippings of writing I'd done when I was five or six that had been published. And I didn't remember that. I didn't, I, you know, I didn't have any adult memory of that. My adult memory of writing was starting a, write, a diary when I was 13 years old and announcing I was going to be a writer. And um, it was generally, to some degree, encouraged by my father, but also he said, you'll never make a living at it. And I wrote a story when I was 16 that he sent to a newspaper columnist in Jamaica, Morris Cargill. Some of you read it, some of your listeners might remember him. Oh, yeah, I do remember him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he wrote back with the best advice anybody can give um, a youngster who wants to be a writer, and that is to keep writing. And I remember what he said. He said, it is only by writing that one becomes a writer. And I didn't completely follow his advice because although I, I have written all my life, I haven't always written for publication because, you know, getting something published is hard. Um, you know, you send it out, it gets rejected, you know, trying to find the right places to send it. It all takes a long time. And then you so, should have um, thick skin, too, because... It hurts. Yes. <laughs> yeah, he didn't. He didn't actually tell me that, but that I discovered, you know, as I, when I decided really to try hard to get things published. Um, but if you don't write, you know, if you, I, I have friends who really want to write and they spend a lot of time thinking about the writing they're going to do instead of actually doing it, yeah. and that's really what you have to do. If you want to write, you've got to you've got to do it. You've got to try and find your voice. You've got to decide what it is you want to write about, which doesn't come to you in the first minute that you think you want to write. And then you have to go through the whole process of getting getting an audience, you know? Yeah. And then um, for an audience, uh, what made you choose this as a topic of interest? Well, I, I love... Jamaica is my is my passion, my... I guess it's the first, it's the first love of my life, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, a lot of my... In fact, I would want to say all of my writing has been about Jamaica. When I was writing, really? yeah, when I was writing newspaper columns, they were about Jamaica. Even the children's books, which actually have never been published, were about mm. Jamaica. Not yet, anyway. We're, Not we're yet. optimistic. Not <laughs> yet, yeah. The yeah. When you wrote this book, who did you have in mind in sharing its pages, and what benefit did you intend the reader to receive? Well, I hope that it would be read both by Jamaicans and by people outside of Jamaica, not just Jamaicans outside of Jamaica, but a general audience. Um, you know, I wanted to talk about modern Jamaica. Often when, when you read Caribbean novels, people writing them don't live in the countries anymore. They're living in, in North America or the UK or Canada because it's very difficult to make it as a writer if you're still living in the Caribbean. So I always find their work has a bit of a, there's a kind of a nostalgic, you know, um, flavor to it, right? And I wanted to write something that was modern. It was about Jamaica now. And I wanted to talk about the subject that we try to avoid, which is that there are two different Jamaicas, you know, at least two. 
and you know yep. there's a bunch of people that live very well and um, mm-hmm. have a lot of advantages and another set of people who don't have those advantages and those people misunderstand each other greatly sometimes dislike each other greatly and yeah. that was yeah. what I wanted to write about. And then the fact that you, when you say that uh, I'm more, I'm a Jamaican, Jamaican in my heart, but I'm more of a Jamaican diaspora, and um, wh- and from that perspective, I learn about the two, just like how you talk about the two ways, the two lifestyles, say the uptown downtown lifestyle in Jamaica, you can see the same thing happening in in um, say where I live, which is in the Chicago metro area. And what you find is that in many inner city communities in the U.S., students are harassed for going to school and speaking in Ebonics, and they're accused of acting, quote-unquote, acting white. And what was really interesting about the book, which really, um, which is so relevant, is that your book touched on the same problem in Jacob's pen, right, okay. where the shopkeeper, he accuses Dexter of not speaking in Papua, and he's too speaky spoky, and he refused to sell to him because he was now acting as he, you know, not that he was attending a better school, he thought he was too uppity, and um, what can people do to prevent students from becoming socially isolated and culturally fractured in such communities? Because you see it in the inner city you know, say with black Americans or inner city blacks versus suburban blacks, but you also see this dynamic, say, in the Jacobs Pen, say the uptown downtown dynamic. Right. I think mm-hmm. two things come to my mind. One is a question of respect. You know, I think we should not let these kinds of what are essentially artificial barriers divide us. You know, things like how people speak, how they dress, their family background, color of their skin, their religion. You know. We talked. This has been an obstacle for humanity, for you know its entire existence. And the, mm-hmm. are, this is something we really have to try and overcome. But in, in the Jamaican context, I like to think of it as people being bilingual. So most Jamaicans speak um, Jamaican. You know, it used to be called Pato when I was growing up, but no more respectfully called Jamaican. Um, and it's not a written language. But no, that's it's fine, not, but you know. That's it's it's a language. So most of us speak it, grow up speaking it, and right. then we learn English in school, and we master English to different degrees. And I think right. I think we should talk about being bilingual. And and Dexter was learning another language. He was learning right. the la- you know English. And I think you know that's how the shopkeeper should have looked at it. Just as, yeah, as, as I might it. as I might learn Spanish or. You know, another right. language, and I think because we have to have respect for other or other mm-hmm. people's languages. And that's how a lot of people that have problems with that. You know, they say when black people, black Americans, they speak they speak Ebonics, and they're like they don't know how to speak English, and they're these ghetto kids, and blah blah blah. And the reality is that any blacks in the di- in the diaspora, you know, we take on. Say I'm Jamaican, so when I took on, my ancestors took on African and English, and we kind of hodgepodged it. Well, the same thing happened with the black American community, right? And they took on the African and and, and their version. But um, Patwa is not respected, or Ebonics is not respected. And so um, it, 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 you're encouraged to play that down if you want yeah. to. Because right, educated, right? So it was, it was just so relevant. It just, it just really appealed to me because I mean, mm-hmm. I can just relate to that. 
Right. You would be cool, though, you know. I mean, and we have to use it. And it's the same thing at school. It's the same kind of thing. You know, they say, oh, no, don't speak Patois at school or in, in, the, in the black American communities here in the cities, like, or the urban centers. Let me just rephrase <laughs> Don't speak Ebonics, you know. But um, you would be you would be considered an uptown Jamaican. How did you learn the idiosyncrasies of, say, downtown Jamaican culture? Well, first of all, I had I, I did have an experience, a relationship with a family of four young boys in the mid-1990s um, that opened my eyes, even though I've lived here all my life, to some of the realities of mm-hmm. life in inner-city Jamaican communities. So I did have an experience that was, you know, an actual one. But having said that, I have to emphasize that dog heart is fiction. I made it up. These are not mm-hmm. real, real events. Yeah. But then the other thing that I, I did was over the period of time that I was thinking about the book, I observed in a much more focused way what was going on around me. You know, if you're going around your, in your daily life, you just kind of, you know, you're not really paying attention to other people. You're You're focused on what you're trying to do. So for mm-hmm. a period of time, I really looked around me at the city and the life I had lived in, and then I asked my quest- myself the question, how would I feel if that were me? Mm-hmm. And I thought about that, you know, I thought about what would it be like to get up every morning to go before it was light and to have to go and collect water and bring it back and then right. get ready for school and have a very traumatic journey to school, right? and then I tried to write about it. So it yeah. was an exercise in empathy, an exercise in imagining, an exercise in observing is the best way I can think. Yeah, your dialogue in the book is so authentic, I must tell you, um, which is similar to the way black American author Zora Neale Hurston, have you heard of her? I have, yes. Okay, well, she captures, um, say, the black American dialect, you know, the Ebonics, and when non-Jamaicans read your book, what would you like them to take from the reading experience? This particular reading is from Darkheart. Right. Well, it's the same thing you talk about. I'd like them to have respect for a very rich language, you know. Mm-hmm. And I had a, I had a, it was a difficult task to render Jamaican on the page and make it not too inaccessible for a non-Jamaican reader, but at the same time, you know, do justice, do honor to the way a boy like Dexter would have spoken. And that was yeah. by far the hardest thing to do in the book. And I hope that when a non-Jamaican reader reads it, it is accessible to them, but they and they can get some of the richness of the language that is part of our culture, part of our heritage. Right. Yeah. When Sahara in your book, when Sahara decided to get involved with Dexter's family, was it because her own son was getting older, and she had still had those maternal instincts? Yeah, partly. But I mean. You know, there is at that time in in a woman's life, however many children she has, when the children leave home, and if she's been engaged in mothering for, you know, many years, maybe she has a part-time job or a job that doesn't fully occupy her talents. She she has a lot of attention on her kids. When they leave home, you know, she wonders about what she's going to do for the next little while. But also I think Sahara was was a Jamaican. She She wanted some meaning in her life, you know. And when she looked at, and thought about her young self, the things she had wanted as a young person, and then she realized she really had not done some of those things. She wanted her life to count for something. And mm. I think those were her motives, you know, she, two two things. One, she had her son leaving home, and there was this vacuum left. 
But the other thing was a feeling that she wanted she wanted to make her life count. She wanted it to be for something, not just somebody who sleepwalked through life and never made a difference. She had that impulse. Yeah. One of your um, chapters talk about being called a roast breadfruit. Yeah. And... Um, the big elephant in the room, right? Shadism is not just a Jamaican issue, right? Um, we don't, believe it or not, it's not. If you go to India in Indians, if you go to the Haitian mulattoes versus Haitian blacks, if you go to Jamaican brown versus Jamaican black, why isn't there more discussion about the social stratification that often goes along the lines of color in former colonized countries? Um, and and it's it's so subtle, but then it's so overt because you go to these countries, especially India, where um, <laughs> the number one thing is bleach and cream. And in Jamaica, you know, we're 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 doing that, bleaching ourselves like there's no tomorrow. Well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, you said it. It's an elephant in the room, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that we, you know, they're not like some of the legal discrimination that used to exist um, on the basis of color has gone. You know, they're they're not laws anymore. That it's not laws that. anymore, but it's still but we there. still have, but we still have it. And we still we have it. And we don't like to talk about it. You know, we want to you, we want to pretend that it really doesn't matter anymore. What color your skin is, but yet, or what even, shade you are, or and what yeah, color. because it's I'm, no, I'm it's not color. It's absolutely shade. It's how light you are. And in Jamaica, there's a particular type that we call a browning. I don't know if this is true in the right. United that's what States. I was talking about. Like in Haiti, you, um, which is more or less black. You know, there's Haitian mulatto versus Haitian black, and in Jamaica, it's Jamaican brown versus Jamaican black. And so these things are still there, but. Uh, I was just really impressed with your your novel that you you brought it up. I mean, you had the courage to bring it up. Um, why some people feel so repressed? It's like it's there. They want to talk about it, but they don't feel comfortable, or it's a power thing. Why do you think more discussions aren't people don't discuss this, but it's still there? Because I think, but very in Jamaica, I think we really don't want to talk about hard things. You know, we call it this. You know, washing our dirty linen in public. And we'd rather not talk about it. And I think that's one of the one of the things in the society that stops us from, you know, making some of the pro- some of the progress that we could. Is that there are lots of things about our history, about our present, about the way we regard each other, all these remnants of our history that we don't talk about and don't address. So I guess part of the reason I you know, as a writer, I want to talk about these things. I want to raise them, and now I'm choosing to raise them in fiction, whereas Mm -hmm. before, you know, I raised them in my newspaper columns. And now as a storyteller, I'm trying to tell a story and say, look, look at how these things play out in in daily life and and hope that people will recognize it. Well, I think people know it, but they just don't want to admit it. I mean, if you go, I watch a lot of movies, and if you watch a Bollywood movie, Right, you will never see a, a pretty dark, a southern Indian woman. Never. They're always northern Im- women, and they're fair, and you know. And then in a, in a couple of the, the few Jamaican movies, that sort of thing played out too. I mean, the fact I'm into journalism and media, so I do pay extra attention to these things. But they just, 
I, I, it's, it, you're doing a really positive thing, and hopefully in the future there can be more dialogue about that. Right. Yeah, you know, we're um, talking about it now, you know, and we're talking about it because of the book, and you know, it happens oh, yeah. in, in beauty contests as well. Oh, you know, you oh, always, absolutely. Very light-skinned women always. Yeah, if you're not. Um, <laughs> yeah, but it's not just a Jamaican thing. It's, I, I just find that to be the case with all colonized people. I mean, uh, every colonized person I've ever come in contact with, right. they have those issues. You know, when you're, say, my Indian friends and we're talking, it's just us. They do bring those things up, but it's among ourselves, you know. <laughs> it's yeah. not. So, But you, um, so finally, tell us about your Buy a Book for Jamaican campaign. Well, the, when I was when the book was about to come out and I was doing some PR here in Jamaica, I did a TV interview one morning. And when I came out, the security guard who you know had me sign in and out of the studio, she said to me, "Where can I get that book?" And I told her. And then she said, "How much is it?" And I told her. And I saw her face fall. And I realized I thought about it, you know, and I realized well that's probably almost a day's pay for her. And I asked myself, well, if I'd had to pay a day's pay for me, would I have, have ever bought a book? And mm-hmm. then I thought, no, I probably wouldn't have. And then the night the book was launched, the same thing happened. The security guard who was at the launch when I was leaving, he asked me the same question. Where can I get that book and how much is it? And I told him and I saw his face fall. And so that was sort of in the back of my mind. And, and then the first time I went away to read to an American audience, I told this story. And I said, really, without thinking about it, you know, I'd love to have a buy a book for a Jamaican campaign so that people who can't afford to buy books could get them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I sold double the amount of books that there were people there. Everybody who was there bought a second book for a Jamaican. Oh. Oh. So I thought, this is a great idea, you know. The the, the difficulty, though, is it is finding a mechanism to distribute the books. Because I wanted to do something more than just send them to a library because people, you know, people don't often feel comfortable going to going to libraries or their lives are too busy. They're working two and three jobs. They can't go to a library. So I wanted to get an actual book in, in their hand, a book they would own, a book they would value and could pass mm-hmm. on to their friends, and which is a bit different to stocking libraries, you know. So I mm-hmm. haven't yet found the right mechanism for distributing them because I don't want to say, well, you know, I'm getting people to buy twice as many books because I'm selling books. I want there mm-hmm. to be uh, an even-handed, transparent, fair way of getting these books into the hands of Jamaicans. So I need right. to find, I think, a non-governmental organization who works, you know, in inner-city communities, who's trusted, who has an interest in literacy and reading, and have them distribute the books for me. And that's mm-hmm. a little piece I haven't managed to put together yet. But every time I go away and read, I I say this, and people do buy books for Jamaicans, and I bring them back home. And I did find those two security guards who asked me for the books, and I gave it oh, to them. Nice. <laughs> yeah, and I and I have given them to other people who have expressed interest, but it's not very formalized yet. Mhm. Well, if um, for those of you who would like to learn more about Chris. Daily's blog, visit jamaicans.com. To learn more about Jamaican Diaspora, you visit Jamaicans, um, jamaicandiaspora.com. And if you go to jamaicandiaspora.com, if you click Caribbean Culture, you can actually purchase Diana's book, A Dog Heart, 
and I, trust me, you will really appreciate it. Diana, we're going to give you the last word. If anyone would like to get a hold of you um, in terms of your book or um, her reading, well, I do, have, I do have a website. It's yes, okay. Okay. is spelled with an A Y. People tend to spell it E Y. But I'm actually, I'm easy to find online because of all my environmental work. Yes, Diana. It's Diana Macaulay, M C C A U L A Y. We right. really appreciate you. So it's Diana. For those of you, I'll say it one more time. Diana Macaulay, M-C-C-A-U-L-A-Y dot com. So feel free to visit her or visit Jamaican Diaspora to get that book. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. Thank you too, Jenny. Thanks very much for talking to me. Okay, bye-bye now.